This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by National Men Make Dinner Day. Carson. Yes. Another holiday the internet invented. Gotta love the internet. The Google box. Carson, are you making dinner tonight? You know, I, I'm not, but but if I was, if I wasn't here... It's a national the, holiday, Carson. It, it is. It is. It is right up there with Christmas and Thanksgiving. If, if I was, though, my go-to is, is obviously the uh, the grill, and I'd probably do uh, the daddy burger, the hamburger that, uh, that my kids like. Wow. Franklin, what's 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 Carson, on tap when you when get this? When it's two a.m. and you're walking the kitchen by yourself and you decide to go for a fourth meal, what do you make up? Do you end up in the back backyard at the grill then as well? He under, makes an entire meatloaf. Yeah. Not, not not a chance. Under lamplight. Not, not, not a chance. I, I think in in that case, if if we're cooking and not you know just just rummaging through the pantry, if we're cooking, it's going to be like a funfetti cake or something like that. You're going to go with the baked goods at two in the morning. So I make what uh, my my kids have dubbed. Joe Boys, they are bacon, cheese, chicken breast sandwiches on the grill. And the kids love, love the Joe Boys. That's that's, uh, that's my go-to. Franklin, when you get the call from the bullpen, Dad's on tap for dinner tonight. What do you I get the call a lot, actually. And uh, I do go to the grill, but I also... He either goes to Grubhub or Uber. I do that as well. But uh, I, I've got a lot of pasta and rice dishes. You can do a lot of different derivations on spaghetti and, on, you know... Yellow rice or Spanish rice or just you know white rice. So I have a lot of I have a lot of dishes I do out of. Why, why do all these made up internet holidays all involve food? National Lifesavers Day, National Donut Day, Donut Day, Kit Kat Day. What do you think goes on in Carson's office all day long? He just makes the stuff. I gotta come now. up with yeah. I got a whole generator. All right. Well, I'm already hungry. Let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We Revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, it was election day this week in five states and numerous cities throughout the country, and we'll discuss the results, the impacts for restaurant operators, and what it all means for 2020. We'll have a particular focus on Virginia, where the results will have the biggest impact for the industry. We'll have a conversation with Chris Lloyd with McGuire Woods in Richmond to walk us through what we need to be prepared for. And the CEO of McDonald's stepped down this week after details of a relationship with a fellow employee became public. We'll discuss how this plays into the ongoing narrative pushed by the labor community that the company and the industry have a culture of sexual harassment and hostility to women. We'll talk about those stories and wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my aligned partners, Franklin Coley and Carson Chandler. And Franklin, your long-awaited Super Bowl happened this week. It was election day in five states across the country. Turned out, in a lot of ways, the kind of way we thought it would be, with a couple little twists and turns along the way. So, oh, we should go back and check the uh, check the scorecard. We should. I think we were right on all of them. No, we were we were split. I thought the red team would win in Kentucky, and you rightly called the blue team would win. And we thought the Dems would pick up seats in New Jersey, and they did not. They actually lost progress in New Jersey, but their margins are still huge, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, but we rightfully look at that. I we think rightfully they lost in one chamber and, and not in the other. But we they had the talking about New Jersey. Yeah, they they lost like five assembly Didn't seats matter. in. There was only one Senate seat. It was a special. There was only one Senate seat up for election. It was a special in the Republican one, uh, which was kind of a surprise in that district. But uh, it was actually Senate District One it was the only Senate seat up in New Jersey. And the Republicans got that, so they picked up one in the Senate, and I think picked up five or six in the Assembly. So it was a little odd. But Mississippi, we rightly predicted that the Republican would win. It was close. It was, it was close. I think it was four and a half, five points to the long term. a little more than that, but yeah, it was close, much closer than it should have been. So that was, and we're waiting for Louisiana this 
another week or so in Louisiana. And tell us about Kentucky, Franklin. So it's probably going to a re-canvassing and potentially uh, a recount. So I guess the the jury's still out, so to speak. But, uh, you know, as of right now, Andy Bashir has secured. He is governor-elect. The Secretary of State, who is a Democrat, has put her stamp of approval on it. So Matt Bevin has not conceded, and I suspect will probably go through the process here, yet to be seen. But, you know, Republicans are downplaying this as Republicans won up and down the ballot besides the governor's race, and they're saying this is a Matt Bevin thing, not a Republican thing. I think that would hold a lot more water if uh, we hadn't seen what happened in Mississippi and we hadn't seen what happened in Virginia. And I think that's a tough narrative for the Republicans to spin, uh, given that. The fact that a Democrat, regardless of how unpopular the governor is, won in a state that went 30 points for Donald Trump, and Donald Trump went down there the night before the election and basically had... So it was about, about him. An anti-impeachment rally, essentially, yeah. with, with Matt Bevin, shows that he... That was baked into some of, of the vote, and certainly it, it needs to be viewed and is viewed as a as a knock on, on the president and Republicans in general. So we will have divided government moving forward in Kentucky. We will have a moderate Democrat at the helm of governor. We will have a Republican legislature. I suspect this won't mean – this won't be – too bad for employers. You know, yeah, I think it's probably the same, much of this. Yeah. The, the extreme stuff in either side, and employment policy in particular, is probably not going to go anywhere. Um, the one thing you would be looking for is stuff out of state agencies like the Labor Department, potentially, you know, overtime rules. Some, I don't know exactly what the state agencies are empowered to do in the state, but that would be one thing that you would watch out for. Again, I don't think Bashir is going to go too crazy with anything. I think he's going to govern from the moderate middle. The, the um, question is how long this recount goes on, because the new, the new Secretary of State in Kentucky that would oversee this process is a Republican, but he won't be sworn in till what, you know, likely next January, right? The current Secretary of State, Allison Grimes, is a Democrat. The process of the next two months will be overseen by her, but if Republicans can stretch that out. Well, and the, the unique thing in Kentucky is the courts play an oversized role. You have to petition for a recount and you have to do so um, through the courts. And so I suspect it will not expect that the Secretary of State and the courts will want to wrap us up probably before the next Secretary of State comes into office. But, you know, listen, it's Who a knows? very it's a very small vote margin. Anything can 5, happen. 5,000 votes. You know, so 5, we just votes, have to so. keep, keep an eye out on this. So, but very interesting race. You know, I did, one last thing I'd say, and then, you know, we can close out Kentucky. Kentucky historically has been a red state nationally and mixed or blue state at the state level, historically. You know, Dems controlled the House there for decades up until like 2015-ish. And obviously, Andy Bashir's father was governor when that went out. Probably three, four terms ago, three terms ago. Not not too long. Andy Bashir, the the younger, is is pretty young. so. So there's a history of conservative Democrats in that state. Just And you can look at other states like West Virginia or North Carolina, for that matter, where you have a similar kind of dynamic. We are seeing that get washed out as these national 
politics and national partisanship kind of wash out these local Democrats. You know, you, you used to have Pennsylvania Democrats that essentially were Republicans at the national, Arlen Specters. You know, so you just don't have that anymore. And so Kentucky is a microcosm of the, of the country in, in a couple different ways. And that was one we saw that on display here where a very unpopular governor that had no business winning re-election almost made it through because nationalizing this race. And, you know, so that was kind of on display. There's also this other thing, and that is these growing blue metros that are turning, that are chipping into these red rural areas. And if you look at like the vote breakdowns and the, the gulf and the difference between the rural red counties and the blue metros, it was ridiculously stark in Kentucky. And the, the the vote totals this time over Bevin's first run in those areas around Lexington, these other blue metros, they skyrocket. Skyrocket, yeah. And and the suburbs too around the blue. But so that kind of dynamic, and we saw that in some of the Virginia races as well, right? And Virginia as a whole, we're seeing that dynamic. That is a uh, that is a long term trend line that has political implications. It has kind of issue management implications for corporate brands and for companies. And we got to figure out a way to talk, operate, and play nice with elected officials in these blue metros because they continue to kind of change the the state landscape. And Virginia is the case study. Of that. And Virginia, I was going to say, the perfect segue to Virginia. Uh, Virginia, as we said last week, will be the most important state because it has national implications. Uh, as we both predicted, Democrats uh, did well. They have taken over both chambers of that le- of that uh, general assembly, and it's going to be a whole new day for operators. Yeah, the other four states will look about the same for operators. Virginia is going to look starkly different for operators, and maybe for a generation. The way that redistricting is coming up, Democrats now have control of the state for redistricting. Virginia used to be essentially, if you're looking in the, if you're a national company and you're looking in the national map and you're looking for areas where you have to worry about, you know, employment and labor policy issues and where, you, you know, they're kind of on the watch list. Virginia was never on that list. Virginia now will be on that list moving forward for the foreseeable future. Two more elections before we push off and, and talk about policy impacts in Virginia. Philadelphia, Mr. Kefoffer, what happened there? Working Families Party has a new member of the Philadelphia City Council. The Working Families Party has established an outpost in Philadelphia. And we talked about maybe four or five podcasts ago about how we're watching the Working Families Party gaining momentum in metros across the country. We talk about the Democratic Party being pulled to the left by unions and by others on labor and employment policy issues. The Working Families Party is essentially a subset of the Democratic Party that their only agenda is labor and employment policy issues. Democrats run for a lot of reasons. They want to do a lot of different things when they get into office. And this is only one piece of a lot of different things that they want to accomplish. The Working Families Party is solely focused on kind of that union agenda. And so winning a seat in the Philadelphia City Council, and who knows, Montgomery County may be next and D.C. after that, they are pushing that agenda into those metros and pulling everyone in those councils kind of to the left in those issues. So this is an interesting and, and somewhat troubling trend line to watch for as local governments that used to be in kind of the trash collection and pothole business are now going to be overrun with working families parties and they're getting in the, the, you know, setting up many labor departments and getting in that space. So 
That is uh, a notable. And the other big city election was the city of Seattle. And we're going to have to follow up in our reports in this. We had kind of mixed results in Seattle. Depending on who you talk to, you know, Amazon won, may not have won. Uh, Amazon appears, it's a close vote and they're still sorting through it, but appears to have taken out their primary target. But they lost a lot of, and the business back coalition that Amazon participates in, but they lost a lot of their other seats and actually they lost a majority. So a progressive majority um, that was not supported by the local business community will continue to control the Seattle City Council. And um, so they may have gotten a win or two, but they may have lost the war here. And the Seattle City Council could come back with a with a vengeance. Did, uh, what happened to the two members that voted yeah, against large. the repeal of the head tax? So Sawan, the socialist alternative, the one at large seat, she has lost, but it's really close. It's basically going into a recount. Okay. So that was Amazon's top target. She led the charge. She more or less kind of became a figurehead and kind of launched, you know, the $15 an hour uh, movement. Um, and uh, she was taken out. Yet again, it's really close. We're going into recount. But I do not know about the other at-large seat. But th- there was at least – there was two or three other races that were business-backed, and, and those candidates lost. And so there will be kind of this progressive majority that returns to the city council. But I, 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 to your point, you know, mixed results, eye of the beholder. But Amazon went after their number one enemy and, and, and t- took him out. That, that she is, was, that she, was, was, she was a national figurehead, not just like a Seattle figurehead. But so. that will have staying power and mm-hmm. the, the, the residents of that could potentially intimidate other people from taking on Amazon. And so Amazon may have, you know, conversely, Amazon may have, ultimately lost a few battles, but maybe won the broader war, just to the converse of what you're saying. Yeah. You, could, you could look at it from both ends, but if I'm Amazon, if I went after my sworn enemy and took him out, I'm going to feel pretty good about that. Yeah. So that's, that's totally legit. And I think we'll be talking about this for a while after this conversation today, because I, I think the judgment and whether or not it was a quote win or loss for Amazon will be, will be determined months, if not years after today. Yeah. So so we'll see. It's it's bold, and it'll be interesting to see if, if this approach is tried in other cities. It's where I want to be, living in the sweet Virginia breeze. The sweet Virginia breeze. So, Franklin, let's pivot back to uh, the Old Dominion, Virginia. You uh, had an interview with uh, a lobbyist there in Richmond uh, that we've worked with, the industry has worked with before. Uh, Chris Lloyd, and he had some really interesting insight uh, on what's about to take place in the 60-day session in Richmond come January. And so, yeah, and he gave us a back-of-the-napkin legislative strategy to try to mitigate some of the uh, some of the coming the coming craziness that's getting ready to crash down in the employment community's head. There, so a lot to learn. So let's let's go to that interview. As we discussed earlier in the podcast, a lot of big election results on Tuesday, and probably the biggest election results uh, were in Virginia. And so we're going to have, for entry-level employers, it is going to be a brave new world in Virginia in 2020. 
uh, things are going to look very different. And so we have uh, the best statehouse lobbyist in the state of Virginia joining us. We have Christopher Lloyd, Senior Vice President, McGuire Woods Consulting. I was very disappointed that we weren't getting Doc Brown on the uh, on the show. I uh, when I pulled up your bio, Chris, I, I was I was a little disappointed in that front, but we're still glad to have you. Well. Franklin, thanks so much. And you know, you would have had Doc Brown, but the flux capacitor is broken. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't couldn't get that restarted in time. Well played, well played. So, Chris, give us kind of your initial thoughts on the results and what they mean in Virginia, and then maybe we'll dig into you know the makeup of the Senate and kind of where those swing votes may be. But just just give us kind of your key takeaways uh, from Tuesday, if you would. Sure. Well, you know, Virginia's had quite a long tradition of a bipartisan commitment to a pro-business climate, uh, regardless of whether Democrats have been in control or Republicans have been in control of uh, the legislature, the executive branch. There's been this just consistent commitment uh, to a pro-business climate in Virginia. But, of course, as the Republicans have also moved right themselves, now you've seen the Democrats have moved significantly left. So we haven't had Democratic control in Virginia for almost 20 years, and the Democratic Party is very different from what it was 20 years ago. So you've got, I think, the, the Democrats who've now taken control of both houses of the General Assembly. The Republicans only had a one-seat majority in both our House and the Senate. Uh, the Democrats now have control of both houses and, of course, the executive branch, is uh, they've made no secret that they intend to enact uh, a number of uh, progressive pieces of legislation that they've tried for many years that have been blocked by the Republican majority, such as issues on wage and right to work and other issues that would be important to the industry. Interesting. So that was a great way to frame it up. So really the the progressive wing and I think we've seen this play out in a lot of a lot of different places. Progressive wing of the Democratic Party has really kind of captured the heart and soul. And same can be true for kind of the Tea Party, if we still use that label. And the on the right side has captured the heart and soul. When you're thinking through, you know, what would a legislative strategy be when a $15 an hour uh, minimum wage comes up for consideration in Richmond? You know, what just back of the napkin, you know, are you looking at, you know, having that conversation in the Senate? Are there any moderate, long term, established pro business record Democrats in the Senate that you think you can pull over? You know, is that a conversation with the governor's office who has been somewhat, I think we could say, uh, you know, middle of the road, moderate? You know, what does that look like when we talk about employment policy issues in the 2020 state legislative session? Where do you think the opportunities are? to uh, find common ground and and who might those players be that could help have that conversation or facilitate that conversation? Sure. I think there are a, a number of moderate Democrats left uh, in both the, the House and the, the Senate, and, and some of them will be obviously in key legislative positions because they've been there for a while and have seniority. Uh, I think the governor's going to be essential to that discussion as well. But again, the governor held a, a press conference uh, with his cabinet yesterday, made it very clear that he was open to an increase in the minimum wage in Virginia. I think the, the timing of that, the scope of that, whether there will be certain carve-outs for that, that is still to be negotiated. The governor has held back as with regards to any specific commitment on minimum wage. So I think you're seeing a great deal of pressure on the, the legislators uh, in both the House and Senate, even the moderate leadership, to embrace something relatively quickly. So I think there are there are senior members of the Senate, uh, uh, Senator uh, Dick Fastloff from Northern Virginia, 
who will be the new majority leader, Senator Howe from Fairfax County, who will be the new chairman of Senate Finance. Uh, there are several members of the House of delegates who will be in leadership position, Delegate Sickles, uh, Delegate Torian, uh, who will probably chair the Appropriations Committee, who all, uh, I think, will um, be a, somewhat of a moderating voice. But I actually think where you're going to see is, is probably minimum wage is going to be the first action item that they take on in the, the 2020 session. And instead, some of the more anti-business or uh, issues of concern to business, such as the very open discussion of repealing Virginia's long-held right-to-work law. That is where the moderates, I think, are going to have a more ability to hold off on a full-scale abandonment of that, at least in the 2020 session. Instead, they would probably give something on minimum wage and hold off on some of the other policies for now. And it seems like it seems like this is inherent to what what you're saying. But if all these conversations and these, it seems like everything's moving pretty quickly. That the business community and just individual operators that happen to live or have businesses in these individuals, any really legislators district, but particularly the ones you mentioned, they need to be going in and sitting down and talking with these elected officials right now is that is that fair to say that's absolutely the case you know we'd go into legislative session the second wednesday of january and you know virginia is the 12th largest state but we have a very abbreviated legislative session this is our long session which is only 60 calendar days so it is the rocket docket it's 3,000 pieces of legislation a 60 billion dollar budget so you've really only got between now and the second wednesday of january to start uh talking to legislators we'll know Leadership decisions are going to be made this weekend when the Democrats go into caucus. Uh, and so now is the time to start having those discussions to talk about uh, the issues of importance to the industry and, and, and making sure that uh, those voices are heard. It's going to be a uh, busy and interesting and I would say... <laughs> I dare to say, uh, probably prosperous, <laughs> you know, a very good session for you and for your lobbying firm. I, I think a lot of people are going to be running to your doorstep looking for assistance. You know, one of the one of the other things that we've been watching, I've seen a couple candidates in Virginia talk about this. I'm curious to see if you've heard any scuttlebutt um, about it. But but one of the things within the minimum wage and paid leave conversations has been rolling back the state's preemption that would allow for some of the cities and counties to set their own their own rates. So it's a two-part question. Have you heard any of that bubbling up yet? And then the second part is, I know you really focus on the state house, but your firm and obviously you, you know focuses much more broadly and does local work as well. As you look across the state, a lot of those cities and counties, particularly in Northern Virginia, are starting to kind of look like you know, Montgomery County, Maryland's always one we talk about on the East Coast. It's always leading in these different initiatives. So how how worried would you be about some of these locals really diving into this issue and even going further than the state? I think that's that's actually a very valid concern. Some of it's going to be driven by uh, how fast the state does move. And I think if localities saw the state moving more slowly than they wanted, then there'd be more agitation for that. You know, Virginia is a strict Dillon rule state, which means localities can only do those things that the legislature authorizes them to do. And so far, uh, a lot of those initiatives to give that greater autonomy to localities have been blocked. I think if some of those other localities in northern Virginia don't see the state moving quickly enough, you're going to see them asking for being released from uh, those restrictions going forward. Well, that is uh, something we will be watching for, and I'm sure you will be as well. All right. Any uh any parting thoughts before we wrap up here? The only thing that I would say is I don't mean to sound so dire on all these issues because I think there are going to be some opportunities to work together. You know, the governor's made it clear that he does have a commitment to workforce training. And I think that'll be very important, a commitment to K-12 education, which will be important to the industry. 
And, you know, finally, Virginia's been one of the states that has not adopted, you know, protections for employees based on sexual orientation. And I think you're going to see some movement there. Uh, and there might be some opportunities for the industry to work together with the new Democratic majority on those kind of issues. That's great. All right. We may check in with you if that's okay uh, as session gets underway because it is going to be fast and furious and very interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you. So Franklin, that was a very good interview with uh, with with Chris. Uh, what was your what was your takeaway? Buckle up, buckle up, Virginia. It's uh, old Virginia. Yeah, it's going to be a rough ride. You know what's going to be really interesting? I think is because Virginia is one of these states that has these shotgun sessions, or you know, really quick, it's like a burst of activity. Is how quickly they push through, say, those first four items is going to dictate if they start getting to the crazier stuff. Minimum wage and probably paid leave, guns, you know, there's going to be, and then probably right to work, like there's going to be a whole, that they try to tackle right out of the gate. If they get minimum wage done the first week and they move on and they knock out guns in the second week, and then, then I'd be worried they start getting into some of the crazier paid leave, pay family leave, scheduling, you know, portable benefits, you know, independent contract, like all this other crazy, less kind of mainstream stuff that we're seeing the Californias and the Washingtons and the New Jersey's explore. I don't think they're going to get there because the, the session is so short. I think they're going to just get through minimum wage and maybe a couple other things, but that's what I'll be watching. You know, one, what outcome do we get a minimum wage? Do we end up with 1250 and some, and, you know, protecting the tip credit, or we end up with, you know, what does that look like? And then what happens if they plow through those priorities early on? And I, I was particularly, you know, what he was talking about with the localities and, uh, and their ability to, you know, they, they're only empowered what the legislature gives them, but, you know, they're going to, this Fairfax County and Arlington County and those kind of D.C. Beltway communities, you know, are going to want real action on minimum wage. And if the state doesn't do it fast enough or go far enough, they're going to want the authority to, to do it on their own. And a lot of big restaurant companies have a lot of operations in those areas. So that, that, that'll be interesting for me to watch how that unfolds. Well, and, it, you know, that restaurant companies need to think through, are they willing to take a higher minimum wage and keep preemption in place? Or do they want a lower minimum wage? Or do they want to propose a regional scheme that's been proposed in, you know, other places, I think, Oregon? So, yeah, a lot of stuff to think through. It's going to be a very interesting legislative session in Virginia, one of the most interesting from our issue portfolio in, in a very long time. So, Franklin, the other piece of news this week that affects the industry is, of course, what the uh, unfortunate set of circumstances that led to the ousting of McDonald's CEO Steve Easterbrook strikes me as, you know, unfortunate, obviously, for a lot of reasons. You know, McDonald's was ostensibly doing well and he had a good reputation. The company seemed like they were on a good run, uh, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it strikes me that, wow, in the heart of a union corporate campaign against the brand and where one of the charges, either fair or unfair, against uh, the system is it has a culture of sexual harassment. And while defending the brand from a culture of sexual harassment, the CEO is having a relationship with a subordinate. That just seems to me to be, this doesn't sit well with me. What is your take? Obviously, it didn't sit well with the board of McDonald's either. Yeah, I mean, look, it's wrong. To the extent there's ever a right time to do this, this was definitely not the right time. I mean, I mean, but what are you post, thinking, though? When this is going post, on around you and you're having a relationship in the office? I mean, come on. Post Me Too, you can't do this, period. In a I story. Mean, that, that's it. And 
and and also yes in the context of uh, uh, a corporate campaign run by a labor union 10 years ago maybe a consensual relationship there's no allegation of harassment here or anything you know a consensual relationship in the office place maybe it would have been an hr issue maybe it would have been kept quiet and gone away well that is uh, not the the world we live in today and it's unfortunate you know poor decision and i think the i think Easterbrook probably recognized it was a poor decision as the uh, the board did, and I think McDonald's corporate made the right decision. No question that they they really didn't have any other decision to make here in this circumstance. Yeah, it's to your point. It's it's just really unfortunate. But you know, fight for fifteen pretty quickly after all this happened. Had two emails out, you know, calling rallying around this and saying that the company is rotten to the core, you know, top to bottom, trying to capitalize on it. They're basically saying, see, we told you there's this culture in this company, right? I mean, they they played right into it. Correct. And it is also in the midst of a lot of other executive departures, not necessarily related, but, you know, they've lost a lot of their leadership here, team here in the past couple months. So not good for a for a company that, as you said, has been doing really, really well on the business side of things. I mean, do you think at some point he was, you know, seeing these headlines and seeing what was coming across his desk and in the middle of staff meetings about what's going on, these lawsuits and union protests, and he's connecting the dots that there's about what he what he was doing in his own life? I, it was, was there some light bulb that went on or, or it never went on or it went on and he dismissed it? I mean, I just, I'm just so struck by the whole basket of, of, of factors when you put it all together that someone thought that was a good idea. I just perplexed by that to, to no end. So it's disappointing. It's another self-inflicted wound for the brand at a time when they can't, you know, seem to get a break. And, you know, they, they get accused of a lot of unfair things. They, they're, they're in the middle of a corporate campaign, which is usually about a bunch of mistruths and half-truths and things out of context. But, man, when you play right into the other side's talking points, the whole industry gets a whack across the knees when something like this happens. And so that, that's why it kind of just really sits poorly with me. The last thing I would say is, you know, we don't we don't know exactly what happened and how long a period this played out for, and you know, we don't know the full story. Is the bottom line, but I think the company handled this as best they could. No question. And and I do think that this will be forgotten in a short period of time because the company handled it the right way. I think if they had tried to keep it quiet and get people to sign NDAs and all kinds of stuff like that, and then it came out then the company would be in a, a much tougher position. Terrible situation, obviously uh, a failure judgment that's been roundly recognized. But to the extent that the, how the company, when it landed in the board's lap and how the company handled this and handled response, I think they handled it probably as best they could. Did, did you see, and I did not, but uh, I didn't necessarily go looking for it, but did you see any of the, the elected, the, the, the band of McDonald's or industry detractors you know, the AOCs of the world and those folks. Did you see any of them jumping on this McDonald's story? I did not. I have uh, not either. Now, I can almost guarantee— Which surprises me, kind of. I can almost guarantee that would have happened if there was an allegation of sexual harassment, and particularly if there were multiple allegations of sexual harassment. In this case, it's one relationship, consensual, and those are the facts as we know them. 
if there had been inappropriate or unwanted kind of conduct and had been multiple individuals within the, the work setting, I think this would have a whole different tone and tenor. And I think it would have gotten a lot more headlines. And I think McDonald's would be build, dealing with this for a number of months rather than it's it's probably going to cycle out of the headlines here relatively well, shortly. Well, laws are, are frequently behind where, where the trend lines are. We, we talk about the modern economy and how we're operating in the Uber Amazon world on a bunch of bricks and mortar kind of laws. You know, I, I think where most conventional thought is now, if there's a dichotomy of power uh, over someone's career or finances, that a lot of people would consider that sexual harassment where the law says so or not. So I just, to your point, yeah, in 1985, this is one thing, but in 2019, this is just a bonehead move and, and self-inflicted, and hopefully we can move past it, and hopefully elected officials and so forth don't make, don't make any more hay of it, but uh, just a very unfortunate situation. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments this week. And as always, we start with wages. Uh, Franklin, a little bit of activity this week, namely uh, New Jersey. Yeah, activity, that's about all it is. We've got a Senate committee that's talking about suspending the automatic increases in the minimum wage there. Essentially, they're worried about unemployment spiking or sales tax receipts going down, and they want to uh, create a mechanism by which they can suspend the automatic increases. I would D O A. Yeah, I would be shocked if the unions let that get anywhere in New Jersey. But some uh, some uh, the restaurant industry getting into it in in Denver a little bit. Man, the restaurant industry punched the mayor in the nose, and the mayor came back and compromised, as well as the city council. So we have compromised minimum wage legislation in Denver, essentially stretching out the phase-in period. The initial bump up now would be 1285. It was basically a buck more before. So modest concessions out of the Denver City Council. I think this thing may be headed into the courts because I think the City Council is locked into a path that they're going to pass something and the restaurant industry and the broader business community thinks they have a pretty good argument that the city is not allowed to do this. So at least yet. Yeah. Yeah, there's a timing issue that the that the restaurant industry is charging that the city does not have the authority at this time and they have they won't have that authority until another year from now to, to move forward on this. So as you're, to your point, the courts will, will decide that. But uh, I think the restaurant guys think they have a pretty strong case. So we'll see how it plays out. So, but uh, kudos for the uh, to, to the Colorado Restaurant Association for uh, rolling up their sleeves and, and mixing it up a little bit. And on the uh, on the wage side itself, in terms of the competition for workers, some, some big news out of uh, another kind of retail player this week. Yeah, we've got two big companies making announcements this week on wages and later paid leave. But Bank of America, they had announced previously they would go up to $20 an hour. They had pushed that back to 2021, but they're still going up to $20 an hour. That's a lot in that kind of entry-level market. That is a, that's, that's tightening an already tight market that uh, restaurants and C-stores and everybody else has to compete with. So that's kind of why it's relevant. You mentioned paid leave, Franklin. Let's just start with, the, with Corporation Pilot. Pilot Flying J, an old pilot travel center. It's been a while since I've hit the, the old pilot travel center, but they have a pretty expansive paid leave policy they're rolling out here. Gender neutral, the advocates had their, their impact. Gender neutral, effective September 1, 100% paid parental leave for six weeks for all team members part full time. Um, you had to have worked 
a number of hours in the in the past 12 months, 1250 is a total. Basically makes you like a part-time worker. So it's a pretty pretty expansive policy. I, you know, I expected that, that truck stops are not the most uh, envious of jobs out there. So they're, they're trying to compete and really raise the, raise the stakes to attract the workers they need. So it's, as we've been saying for a long time, the marketplace seems to be moving faster on this than even legislators are. But speaking of local legislators, San Antonio, the fight continues. It's like the paid leave Alamo down there. Yeah, I mean, it's just another twist and turn. Nothing really to report. It's continuing to, to move forward through the legal process. We have to watch this thing till its absolute conclusion. But I think that the, the judge indicated this week that uh, he, he thinks he's going to rule before the end of the month, and it's you know November the 8th as we speak, so you know another couple of weeks we'll have some resolution in San Antonio. Uh, speaking of litigation, Franklin's pitch, uh, pivoting to scheduling. A little lawsuit filed in Chicago. Yeah, the Building Owners Management Associate Managers Association, BOMA, filed a lawsuit BOMA. against the Chicago Scheduling Ordinance. Essentially, they're saying this thing's preempted by the National Labor Relations Act. Interesting to see how that plays out in the courts. The other argument they're making is it's a violation of federal and state equal protection laws. It's essentially treating them differently than others. Their big beef here, though, is they're they're worried that this is going to kind of lock in conditions for renegotiations of collective bargaining agreements. So anyway, this is going to be interesting. This is the first lawsuit in Chicago, and there are some real problems with that scheduling ordinance. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how all this plays out. And speaking of scheduling, it looks like uh, 2020 may be a, um, a busier year on the subject than we anticipated. Yeah, we've talked about it before in this podcast that a lot of the energy over the past year 2019 legislative sessions all across the country was really diverted towards paid family leave and so there was all this momentum around scheduling it was kind of blunted by paid family leave getting a lot of attention it looks like the Center for Popular Democracy, a union backed group, is not going to let that happen, at least quietly, this go around. They are announcing that in 2020, they're going to push fair scheduling ordinances in states across the country. And in particular, they called out four states, New Jersey and Washington, which we kind of already knew, but also Connecticut and Massachusetts. Those have always been in the watch list, but I'm not sure that we really knew that kind of introductions or legitimate introductions were imminent. So that will uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in those state houses. So uh, let's pivot to general labor policy and head up to D.C. to uh, the Labor Department. A couple, uh, couple things of note this week. Yeah, the uh, fluctuating work week rule we reported on last week that was at OMB is now out. Look it up, read it. You can put comments in. That is probably going to be applauded by the larger employer community. Uh, it gives more flexibility in how you calculate overtime or keep part-time workers from kind of triggering those overtime requirements. And other news out of the Labor Department this week, not good news. Um, the apprenticeship program is, man, it's under scrutiny for alleged misappropriation of funds. It seems that this is tied up in essentially the Labor Department had to create new rules and new structure in order to get these new apprenticeships, a lot of which are in the hospitality industry, approved as registered apprenticeships, and then they could pull down these monies. And it looks like some of these monies may have gone into these unapproved apprenticeships. So does that affect, do, you, do we know, uh, there's big apprenticeship programs, obviously the restaurant, hotel, lodging are, are embedded in some part of that. Does any of this affect them? Do we know yet? I think that remains to be seen. And so 
This warrants everyone taking a close look at it. Congressional Democrats are already starting investigations. They've named, it looks like some public affairs firms that may have worked on this. But the interesting thing is this was a centerpiece of the Trump administration's Labor Department and a centerpiece of kind of their labor policy. And now it's getting embroiled in this uh, this controversy. Do you get a sense that it's that they're being accused of you know sloppy execution or intentional malfeasance? What's the based on what you've seen? Where do you what, what are they getting accused of? Well, all these are allegations at this point. So, but again, is it is it allegations of just screwing I think up or fraud? I think it's slop. I think okay. it's sloppy okay. rather than fraud. But I think we're going to find out all of that over many months. And so everybody should be getting their ducks in a row right now um, because there's going to be a lot that with of a very deep voice. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of letters flying out of congressional committees requesting information from probably companies and trade associations and others. Okay, pivoting to immigration, Franklin. There's an interesting case in the U.S. Supreme Court now coming out of Kansas that may be considered soon that people should pay attention to as well that could outline a larger state role in what is technically a federal area, which is immigration enforcement. Who's out of Kansas, Mr. Kefauver for Pop Quiz? Alf Landon. <laughs> Chris Kobach. He is all kind right, of the yes. architect of all of these. Um, Do you know who Alf Landon is? No. He was the 1936 Republican candidate for president that got steamrolled by FDR. That's impressive. But he's from Kansas. He's the architect of all these attrition through enforcement type policies, many of which have been embraced by the Trump administration. So one of the things he cooked up is this, hijacking identity theft laws because every potential employee has to file a social security number. And if you don't have a social security number, you file a false or non-existent made up social security number. Essentially, they sought to tap that identity theft law around social security numbers um, to enforce immigration at the state level. Now, of course, social security numbers are federal. And so really, this should be the purview. That's the argument that has been made that has essentially stayed this this law. That should be the purview of the federal government to enforce that. The U.S. Supreme Court is going to have the final ruling on whether the states can enforce this or it's the role of the federal government. And the impact to employers from this conversation will be potentially tremendous. We could have a lot of states kind of going into this space. Identity theft is a whole kind of different ball of wax and different area of law that's much more punitive than than potentially kind of immigration. So that is the issue and that is one worth watching. That is one worth watching. Uh, let's pivot from identity theft to wage theft. Again, New Jersey having a conversation about potentially moderating uh, some previously passed legislation. What are they doing now? I do think that there's an appetite to make some tweaks across the board. I think there's a real opportunity, whether in the lame duck session or the 2020 session, to get some revisions to the wage theft law and create some safe harbors for employers that are trying to do the right thing and are just making errors. We've talked about this before. We talked about it with Wawa that got nailed. We talked about it as soon as it got passed, that basically anything, if you have a payroll error, it qualifies as systematic under New Jersey law, and that can automatically trigger jail time. So there's a hope that they can go back and, and tweak some of this, and that will be important for the employer community to watch and participate in that conversation. It seems to me like in New Jersey that, you know, even though it's the legislature's, you know, by any standard, a, a liberal legislature, that they aren't as far to the left as the governor, and that there is some some appetite in some places in the legislative setting to to kind of find some solutions and compromise, but you don't hear that coming out of the, <laughs> Governor Murphy's office. 
Mm-mm. So it just seems what happens. So let's pivot to the other side of the country in Seattle. A little restaurant tour that's kind of notable in the Seattle area. It runs, you know, 15, 20 kind of higher-end restaurants out there. Getting a little heat right now. There's been a class action lawsuit filed against them on the service fee. Yeah, and we've talked about this issue in this podcast. It's a bunch of California cities in, uh, restaurateurs were doing this, and they got their uh, they got in trouble for it. And um, so now we have a restaurant group in Seattle. They charge a twenty percent service fee, theoretically to offset the fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage in the city. And you know they didn't. They're being the, accused of. Yeah, the allegation is they didn't properly note to the customer how where that fee was going and how it was being split up, and a portion of it was being kept by the company. This is not going to play well for this company. This just does not look good. Anytime you do these service fees, you're going into a kind of a gray area of the law where you got to really know exactly what you're doing. And anytime it plays like this, where you're taking a portion of the money, that's just not going to put your brand in a good light. So be careful with these things. Probably don't go near them. But if you do, you need to really think through all the potentialities. And I think it's a, one symptom of a, of a broader growing issue that we're seeing in these states that are having these high wage laws passed. There's this kind of cottage industry build up around enforcing them, wage theft boards, and of course our friends at the Plaintiff's Bar. And you know, this is a two and a half million dollar you know class action lawsuit. Who knows whether any of it has merit or not? But what happens in these lawsuits? People just decide at some point it's time to settle. Trial bar gets a big payday, and they go on. So how, people just how, need to protect themselves. How dare you talk about wage theft? and the plaintiff's bar and big settlements without talking about California. Well, speaking of California, different Joe, Trader Joe's in the mix there. So this happened to Cheesecake Factory, our good friends over at Cheesecake. What, a year ago? They were they were the first kind of big headline in uh, enforcement of this new law. But uh, Trader Joe's is in the, in the news this week. A company they were lying on called Inventory Professionals, which helps with, you know, inventory, was found to be guilty of underpaying 64 of its workers. And under California law, the state labor commissioner can now go after those monies up, swim upstream, and go to the prime contractor, in this case, Trader Joe's, and hold them liable for their subcontractor's employment policies. Still seems just kind of crazy to me, but that's it. We'll see what happens to your point. Probably going to end up being a settlement at some point. So. Um, and one last question for you, Franklin. I, I'm just I'm a little worried about you. Are you are you feeling okay? You everything good in your world? Everything's good in my world. I mean, yeah. I, I I mentioned something about politics in 1936, and you just didn't jump on me. It was an open door, and you just <laughs> it just left it. And I well played. I, I don't know if there's something wrong with you. I didn't you know. I just felt like giving you a break this morning, my uh, man. Okay. All right. All right. Well, that's the scorecard for another week. Always busy, and I'm sure there'll be more next week. Well, another week, another pod, another exciting weekend. This is like Franklin's worst weekend of the year because he has 361 more days to the next election. So he's just he's that far from his, his Super Bowl and a little bit of mourning at the Coley household. It is it is the beginning of college basketball season though, so I do have that 
and some other things going on this week. Yeah, the the firm's going to be at, uh, there's an event here in Orlando called Cows and Cabs. Like cows is in meat and cabs is in and wine, but it's a big, uh, it's a big Red on red. Drink Festival, and uh, it's being put on in support of two organizations that we're deeply tied into, After School All-Stars, which uh, does programming for at-risk youth in middle schools and high schools around the country, and then our very own Opportunity Jobs Academy, which uh, which sets high school students up for success with their with their first job in the in many of our clients. So good stuff. We'll, we'll have some fun, and we'll support a good cause. Sounds like a plan. See you next week. 